Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Our guest today is Mary Muirhead, OAM, the co-founder, chair and chief fundraiser for the Learning for Life Autism Centre. Hi, Mary. Hi, Celia. Mary, Learning for Life turns 15 this year. Congratulations. But before we go any further, I might get you to go back to where it all began. Well, firstly, Celia, thank you for having me today. I feel completely honoured to be here. So 15 years ago, uh, a group of people got together and they saw a social justice issue and that was that there was a really good early intensive behavioural intervention program running which was had been going from the mid-1990s and it was very effective uh, based on intensive hours of one-on-one therapy with children in their homes but we realised that only people with reasonable incomes could or substantial incomes, in fact, could afford the therapy. What sort of costs were we looking at at that time? At that time, it was between thirty dollars to $50,000 a year per child. So we were looking at children doing 20 to 40 hours of one-on-one therapy a week, and they were doing that for several years. And the outcomes were amazing, but only people who could really afford it. And it was really just a, a justice issue at the time. It, I actually um, saw this program working with a child and I just could not believe that Australian children didn't have fair access to these programs. It was just, it just stunned me that the average child in Australia was very disadvantaged compared to a a child, say, in America, who was receiving this um, just as a normal intervention that was funded sporadically still in America, but substantially in certain areas. So at this stage, were you still working as a vet? I was actually just studying my family and I had put the veterinary practice on hold and when I got to the point of whether I wanted to go back to work as a vet, it was like I actually didn't want to. I, I, I loved being a vet at the time, but I really wanted to be with my family and I wanted to do something at home in my own time with flexible hours. Um, and I really wanted to make a difference. And having children changed my focus a little way f- away from animals to children and people. Um, I still love animals, but... Um, children became my focus and I wanted to make a difference in that space. So you've got a very young family and you've just finished working as a vet and you decide to take on a project of this scope. Did you realise at the time how big it was going to be? I think that I personally was crazy to launch into this, but I wouldn't have done it without the support of my husband, who's who's one of the founders as well, and also the other founders. So we, it was a collective team that made and we all had different things to bring to the table mine was that I was quite happy to dedicate some time to fundraise for a program that was going really well so that um, children and families could access it but I really did not have any idea the path that was before me uh, was probably just 
as well. well. Yeah, because we just started very, very slowly. We were advised to just do things slowly and do them very well. And how did you start? What did you do? You decided that children needed access to this program and that you needed to help families fund access to the program. How do you go about doing that? So 15 years ago, we had one of the clinical people who were running these programs. Her name was Naomi Labram. She was one of the founders. She set up the charitable status and the organisation. So there was a lot of background work that happened 15 years ago to set up the organisation and the charity. And so she did that. And then once we had all that in line, we had a certain uh, funder who would also put funds in and we set up a fundraiser and we said right we'll fundraise a certain amount of money and then we'll literally subsidize one child and so in the first year we kept that fundraising going and we invited people to support our work and that's just how it all started but our our mission was not only to subsidize the programs but also to provide a full service model of this um, service so previously the programs that were being run were the families actually had to source their own therapists they would have a program supervised but they would actually have to find their own therapists run their own business timetable therapists and do all that sort of work themselves which is really stressful for the families so we wanted to provide a full service model and subsidize programs we also wanted to set up career pathways for the therapists that we were training so that they could see a career pathway and stay in the system because what was happening when families train up therapists they may be university students studying psychology or speech pathology or in education and they may come in and do some really fantastic work and be trained and they leave then they would leave yeah Yeah. so we we set up a career pathway Um, and the last part of our mission was to set up research from the very get-go. We collected data and we wanted to show the effectiveness of the programs in Australia in in a home-based setting. So it was a one-stop shop for people wanting to go through this process? Yeah, for early early intervention, yeah, that's right. We actually provided therapists. um, We looked for subsidies for them. We soon realised that there were some people who could actually afford the uh, therapy, so they joined in, the the numbers swelled, um, and that was fantastic. So they got the advantage of the full-service model um, and not, you know, that we could timetable their therapist, send out the teams, train the therapist so that they had, you know, high skills in mm. in the program so that was really really great wow so how many people now how many families are accessing the learning for life autism center in the last year we actually had about 60 families in early intervention mm. and of them we subsidized about 44 percent of those but also from the early days we've actually spread our range of services so that they've gone now into primary school and secondary schools so we work across the ages from preschool now to secondary school aged kids so we also work in lots of um, schools as well so that's been fantastic. What's the success rate does does every child come through the program with the skills to to go on and and function in a in a school environment? So 50% of the kids made major gains and they could go into mainstream schools. Um, 25% of the children made good gains but needed still high support and then 25% of the children still would need continual support. But even those children, they made gains that were significant to their family. So um, measuring, you know, on assessment levels, they might not look like they 
made great gains, but they were toilet trained yeah. or they went into schools with communication so skills. So in terms of where, how their families yeah, function. Yeah, absolutely. They've gone from absolute. That's right. And we have to remember to that autism is a spectrum so that every child has a potential and that is our aim is for that every child to reach their potential. So success is not measured in whether they go to mainstream school or not. It's whether they reach their own potential and that they are living a happy, meaningful life within their families, they're safe, you know, their anxieties are reduced. They're the, they're the things that we measure as a success for a child. And when you use those as measures, then all the children going through our programs are successful. And that's what inspires us to keep mm. going. Are there more children on the autism spectrum now, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it didn't feel like? Or is it just that people are getting diagnosed more often? Certainly there is more diagnosis, which is, which is good. It means that people can access services. The definition of autism has changed. So you can include people that are having social and communication um, issues. Yeah. yeah. So there probably are more people diagnosed with autism. We're picking it up more and there's more awareness. What are some of the things that the parents have said to you because I imagine uh, I've attended a few of your fundraising functions thank you Celia I've heard good supporter (laughs) (laughs) but the the stories are always bring you to tears because the the parents talk about being in a place where they just didn't know where to start and learning for life being like a beacon and that's that must be extraordinarily satisfying for you it's massively satisfying all the stories are so different um, as you've heard but people can get paralyzed firstly by the diagnosis itself at first, they think it's something catastrophic that's happened in their family and they need that support to realise that their child is still the child that, you know, was born to them yep. and that they know Part and love. Part of the family. Absolutely. Yep. And then they become aware with support that that child has got great potential. So supporting the family is, is key. But they don't know where to start. So if our logo is actually um, an adult leading a child through a maze mm. and that's the level, like the families feel like they're in a maze when they're first um, going through diagnosis and they don't know where to turn for help and when they connect with us, um, we can provide support and we can provide parent training so that parents know how to work with their child minute to minute, not just when the therapists are coming in the house. The therapists can deal with um, challenging behaviours or promote behaviours that will help the child, like communication skills or self-help skills like getting dressed, going to the toilet, that will actually settle the family, will calm them Mm. down. Um, and then the children often really take off and the siblings can be involved in their program. So I've seen children who suddenly realise they have a brother to play with. Not just a problematic person. That's right. No, because they've actually, the children with autism may have been so in such their own world mm-hmm. and shut down that they don't even realise that they have a sibling. They can interact with. That they can interact with. Yeah. And when I, I've had a mum send me a little video when she saw that her son was recognising the brother mm. in a game of Chasey. Yeah. And you wouldn't recognise that moment in a playground, but the mother does. Yeah. And she sent that to me as a like isn't this amazing the little exercise that he was being taught in his therapy session he's generalized into the playground suddenly realized that there's a buddy there he could do it a lifelong buddy yeah those moments are like 
Incredible. Beautiful. Beautiful. Tell me about how Igniting Change became involved and at what stage of Learning for Life's development did that happen? Celia, that happened really in the early days because so my husband, Tom Gleisner, who works with your beautiful husband, Michael, at Working Dog, they were looking at how they were going to um, use their charitable giving. And that was way back in the days of the panel when at the end of the year they did a show that they would contribute the sponsorship from that show. Resort was, charity. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, they were looking, who, who could help us to make a wise decision about their giving? And they turned to Jane Tucson and Igniting Change. So I saw that and Tom was part of that. And I actually connected with Jane initially as she was a mentor to, to me. I would go and have chats and coffee and because I had never run a foundation yeah. before. I'd never worked with the, the philanthropic, you know, area. area. Yeah. Um, and so she taught me really basic things like to inspire people for support and also to, sh- to listen to people in her own quiet way showed me that if you are compassionate um, and show kindness and listen to people what they want – the families, but also our donors, what do they want and how do they want to be involved? Mm. So when she showed me that when you involve people, that they'll be part of what we call our Learning for Life village. So we we started building a village of support around the child and their family and then the, the therapy team was that next sort of circle of support around. But the next bigger circle is where Jane came in. It was like the support family, the village. That's where she helped guide me and then after that um, she kindly set up lunches every couple of years she would invite people who were interested in our work we would tell our story we would invite a parent to share a story that was really you know engaging and then around the table people could ask questions Mm. that was really um, that close connection with people that really helped set up a few relationships that have been incredible to even now we have some relationships that were started through Igniting Change that have sustained many of our programs. And just spreading awareness too because... Oh, absolutely. You know, everyone will at some stage in their life meet someone who who knows someone who's had a child, doesn't know what to do next. That's right. To be able to say, I know, I know a place. Yeah. It's, it's invaluable. Yeah. At that early stage, how did you go about the fundraising? That must have been pretty tricky. Well, initially... I just used the skills that I had as a kindergarten parent or a parent of primary school. Literally, I did fundraisers that I saw worked. So the first year we just ran one stand-up cocktail function um, at the Melbourne Uni Boat Shed. I remember. And Celia, you were there. Yep. Um, 200 people. uh, We raised $20,000 that we literally set sail then. That was 2004. In 2005, we only had one fundraising event. That was a ball and that was incredible. We rallied this village. I couldn't believe, you know, you, you, you build the field and they will come. And, mm. and they did. And mm. I was just amazed. Um, and we always make, try and make it fun. We want to tell our story. And people got on board. And so the first years we just did events. Mm. Then we realised we had to have diversified sort of funding sources so later down the track we have someone who actually applies for grants for us mm-hmm. we talk to people in the philanthropic sector so and that's where igniting change has been a great help you got an oam a couple of years ago and your beautiful husband tom received a gong last year 
What do those um, awards mean? I know you're both very humble people and it's it's never about you, but how does that sort of honour translate into working for the good of learning for life? I see those awards as um, – because initially you're right. We go, oh, my God, you know, that's – you know, it's very overwhelming. We, we don't want to beat our own drum. But if you step back from your own person and you see yourself as a team and an organisation, we're really – proud to have achieved what we've done with Learning for Life and with Tom he also works with Challenge Kids with Cancer and their families so um, we're really representing those organisations and I think what it does is it shows people that this is what you can do and it's not out of reach when we are in those ceremonies we can see all the people who've done amazing things and it, it inspires other people to do what they can to help other people. Do you think that you and Tom are together because you're so similar in that way. I mean, you both have this enormous desire to do good for other people and I think that it's quite remarkable. Oh, we, we don't really think about it. I think we have complementary skills. We have a united desire to help. When I first st- started doing fundraising events, I was paralysed by speaking, so this is not my comfort zone, speaking. Mm. So I would literally push Tom and say, I just can't do it, I can't stand up and tell the story publicly. So, and he, you know, being used to public speaking and being on the television, you know, that was being in front of a microphone, in front of a crowd, and also people listened to him. It, it was great to have that public um, face. But now you are front and centre. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm still not comfortable, but I... I but I, you're very good at it. Oh, thank you, Celia. <laughs> Sometimes I go, I, I think I need to tell this story, you know, but um, no, he does such a great job. But my favourite thing is to actually go and have coffee with people and spend time talking about our families and our children because that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I love doing. I love to go out and meet the families. And so we're complimentary and that he can be a public figure and I can be quietly going and chatting to people. I go and talk to the organisations in the autism community and hang out at conferences. And well, it's like the Igniting Change, meet the people, feel the issues. Abs- it's it's about it's about connection. Absolutely. Mary, I am... Um, I think that you are remarkable and I think that the work that you do is amazing and I know that there are so many hundreds of families who are in your debt. So congratulations on that. Congratulations on on keeping the uh, igniting change philosophies at work. The last thing I'm going to ask you is what I ask all the people that I talked on this podcast. What's the one thing that igniting change has taught you? It's very hard to single one thing out, Celia. I think to see the person, not the label, is massive in the autism community. People are judged. There are stigmas. Um, people make assumptions about people with autism. And if we don't judge them and we just treat them as individuals, we actually can release their... They can flourish and we can see their potential. But also to listen to people, to show compassion and kindness and to inspire support is, is really what we've learned from Igniting Change. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.